Today's episode is presented by Tudor University. How are college coaches learning advanced recruiting techniques from the comfort of their home? Go to dantutor.com and click on Tudor University for all the details. And now, it's time for the show. That's right. It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, third place finisher in the 1994 West Coast Breakdancing Championships, Dan Tudor. Hey, Coach. I hope you're having a great day as you begin listening to today's podcast. And I hope, really hope, that you're ready to put your thinking cap on and do a deep dive with me into the economics of college athletics This is going to have direct correlation to you no matter what division level you coach, no matter what sport you coach, because we're going to be talking to A.J. Maestas. He is the CEO and founder of a firm called Navigate Research. Now, many of you have heard about them. If you haven't, uh, a quick quick explanation. They are one of the leading names in studying the economics of college athletics. And... I originally had a conversation with AJ back in uh, early March. And if you put two and two together, early March of 2020 was uh, right before the major outbreak of the COVID-19 crisis and all of the resulting things that it led to around college and professional sports. So about three days before the NBA announced that they were canceling their season, Uh, That was when we were talking to AJ, and it was following a number of things I had read and a podcast of his I had listened to where he talked about the economics of college football that was just fascinating, and I wanted to get him on our show to talk about uh, recruiting the economics of not only football and college basketball, but all sports and at all division levels. And we had a great conversation, which you're going to listen to. But then the COVID-19 crisis hit and the NCAA basketball tournament was canceled and colleges began closing and there's just this ripple effect and I kind of had to just hold the, um, the the interview because there were all these other factors and all these other uh, priority points that kind of jumped out in the emergency time that we were in to try to help and address the situation uh, with all of you. And so we did a lot of special interviews and topics related to getting through the COVID-19 crisis. And all the while, I'm sitting here thinking, man, I've got this great interview with AJ Mastis uh, sitting here. How do we use that? When is the right time to to talk about it and, and in what context? And uh, I think now is the time because one of the resulting things that we've seen happen as a result of this crisis is college athletic departments have begun to cancel Sports. They have begun to drop uh, athletic programs. And uh, there has been a whole movement behind trying to make this stop, trying to make the case that college athletics and individual sports programs, especially the non-revenue sports, sports like swimming, track and field, uh, some of the things that, that don't necessarily bring in the big dollars but contribute to rosters and everything, uh, there's been a, a push to save those sports. And our friend Greg Earhart, who leads the College Swim Coaches Association, uh, has been behind uh, making the case that 
the, uh, the, the sports matter and that they're good for college campuses and athletic departments and they are a good investment. Uh, you may have seen uh, the Save Our Sports hashtag on, on social media. And that's, that's kind of a, this, this effort that's going on is to save our sports. Well, this provided me a good segue to, uh, to find a way to introduce the conversation I had with A.J. Maestas, again, the, the CEO and founder of Navigate Research, into this conversation because we can make the emotional argument that sports matter. Is there an economic argument to be made? And the answer is yes, and it's fascinating, and we're going to go into a deep dive with it today with Mr. Maestas, and uh, he was kind enough to join us again for this conversation that we did right before the pandemic hit, and we're going to dust it off now and introduce it as something for coaches to consider, definitely something for athletic directors consider, so to consider so, Coach, we want you to um, to let your athletic director know about this. Hopefully, he or she can uh, can take a listen because it may affect their thinking on how they look at college athletics, the operation within their department, and the economics behind adding or dropping sports and investing in sports in some of the ways that they promote it and grow it with within your college campus. So that's how we're going to start this conversation is really with the question of why does this make sense? Why does investment into college athletics, not dropping and cutting sports, but the actual investment of dollars in give a college campus a real return on investment that is measurable and quantifiable and is good for the college campus? That's what we're going to be talking about here. That's how we started off this conversation with A.J. Maestas. Well, if you look at the economics of, let's say, college football or college basketball, um, the scholarships look like a good deal in isolation versus the revenue associated with those sports. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm holding aside Title IX and and the support or financing of all the Olympic sports, as they're called. But uh, if you just look in isolation of incremental dollar invested or hour invested relative to return, the cost of the talent, and, and I'm referring to the scholarship and the time and effort to attract and retain that student athlete, the total cost of that talent is well below the average business model in sport or entertainment. Um, and we understand why it's amateurism and, and we understand how the model works. Of course, anyone listening to this would, but, um, but for that reason, um, you could almost apply what would be normal market conditions of what would be the payroll for a sports team that put this many butts in seats and had this many eyeballs watching on TV. And you could go all the way up to that fair market sort of compensation in spending on your coaching staff and the attraction and retention of the talent um, to make the model work. So given winnings correlation to revenue, um, so there is a positive cash on cash ROI here and the winner take all nature of recruiting, um, the incentive is, is clearly there and the return on investment is there uh, to spend more on recruiting in time and in money. So that makes perfect sense. And I like how you relate it back to just, you know, a, a business model. That's how businesses would determine return on investment. And it seems that in, especially in division one college athletics, instinctively or in their gut, athletic directors, uh, board of regents, whatever, whatever the uh, directing body is, they know that, if we have a good football team, and I'm boiling this down to something very simple. So if, if we have a great football team that goes to the college playoff, maybe wins the national championship, that's going to be great for the university, great for our revenue. Um, 
why why don't they look at at sort of the metrics of this? And I'm sure in some level they do, but probably not to this level. So what kind of give me like your view of of how right now it's being approached across the college landscape? Well, um, you'll have to stop me if this is going down a rabbit hole, but if we, we specialize in that, so that's no problem. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think your audience, you know, athletic directors and administrators and coaches, um, they'll understand this, but, but maybe I could even give you an exercise to possibly understand it better. Yeah. Uh, at the university level, the culture of the university, the risk reward nature of it, how people are compensated, how their careers move forward. Um, uh, you have to ask yourself, what is the mission of that university and the ultimate, you know, CEO of that entity, that university president, and what is his or her incentive, uh, right? Um, this might sound ridiculous, but mm -hmm. just taking 10 deep breaths and putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about what matters to them, their family, their reputation, their career, um, the risk reward that comes with all those things. And how important is collegiate athletics? I, I think all of them, or many of them, the overwhelming majority would agree with the philosophy of you know healthy mind and body, and and um, and they would see incredible benefits to the university and the brand and being the front porch of the university and the connectivity of the community and um, the diversity that athletics tends to bring onto a campus of any level. This isn't just Division One. There's there's great benefits that I think most academics would agree with and that I agree with. But there are a lot of stakeholders and constituents in, in the collegiate world, uh, students, staff, fans, faculty, uh, politicians, uh, the, the list goes on and on, right? Um, the student right. athletes are a part of that audience, but it's going to be, let's call it 3% of your annual budget. And um, it can get you in a lot of trouble uh, if you don't nurture it correctly. But it is not center or even close to center of the mission of the university or what has driven you to be in the career you're in or the place that you're in. And, and if you can put it in that perspective and take those 10 deep breaths and ask yourself, what matters to my university president? I, I'm afraid that what you'll find is that this is uh, often beneficial, but, but often distracting thing um, that isn't central to the mission of the university. So I, I hope that wasn't too far down that rabbit hole. Um, and I do want to answer your question of how this yeah. translates to smaller universities, but, but where is this in its place and priority with the university overall is a pretty big question. Right. So you mentioned um, in listening to the previous podcast that, that I heard you on, and I will link to it in this, uh, in the show notes to this for anyone who wants to, uh, to listen to it. Cause I don't, you and I talked before and we don't want this to be a duplicate of that podcast. It's very interesting, but, uh, but we don't want this to be the same. Do you have an example of uh, of a school that seems to be getting it, like that that seems to be further down this road of understanding those metrics, or at least a version of that. And I know you mentioned you brought up this one example, Oregon University of Oregon, and, and maybe you have another. But can you just talk about uh, give us an example of maybe a real living, breathing entity that they could relate to in in understanding in their world of college athletics, who's doing it right, or who is sort of maybe modeling this example the best. Right. Well, um, the Oregon story from that John Wilner uh, podcast was a long view, you know, looking at uh, decades of the building of the brand and the uniforms and finding a point of differentiation with facilities when they were on the early edge of that on the West Coast, at least, 
um, which isn't what I would recommend for the first or even second place to go with investment. But they didn't have some of the other, they didn't have a fertile recruiting ground. They didn't have sort of a history. They, they didn't have a lot of, um, uh, of the other advantages that sort of naturally elevate a program. Um, but, but, you know, to, to keep it new and fresh, uh, I'm sure people are tired of hearing Alabama examples. Um, but uh, I think Alabama is a good example. Uh, they, you know, they have a person dedicated to analytics and assessing, you know, sort of business results and, and what comes from these type investments. They have a, what looks like relative to the norm and overinvestment in technical staff and recruiting and services. Now, it's easy to say when you have their resources and success, um, but uh, I don't think that it's a coincidence. I, I don't think that them landing essentially every year, the number one rated recruiting class is a coincidence. They are in a fertile part of the country for recruiting but less than a third of their athletes are in-state athletes. Um, so they are reaching out to find people and they have competition in their state. Unlike a number of those uh, Southeastern schools, they, they have Auburn right there in their backyard. It is not right. that populous of a state to say that just being born in Alabama means you want to play for the University of Alabama. And therefore they have some sort of inevitable advantage that leads to this top ranked class every year. So. Um, I could give a ton of others. I can give ones that, that haven't come, you know, yielded uh, the results that people would like yet. You know, Tennessee has stepped up their game in these ways, you know, and, and it's not all. In, in what ways? Like give an example of what you know that they're doing. Well, the, uh, let me cluster together the top sure. programs, maybe the top sure. five that are making these investments. Uh, whereas a medium power five, you know, football program might have one person that's creative um, doing, you know, kind of dedicated to social, mobile, digital, or and and it's a part of other people's lives and the on the recruiting staff. But maybe one dedicated person. There could be as many as six or seven or eight or or student internship programs and groups that roll through many students that are helping with the creative aspects and relationship. Um, you know, I mean, if I were to get right to the crux of it, the first place I would go is I would exhaust my resources on social media before I even look to traditional mediums or channels or methods of communication to these uh, prospective student athletes, these recruits. And um, before I looked at, you know, many of the more expensive full-time hires and things that could be done. And there's, there's ways to, there's ways to get past that. There are internship volunteer group type ways to, to staff that. But the first screen that a young person sees Gen Z, uh, this is kind of the stuff that navigate does, right? This is what we do for a living. Right. We just completed this Gen Z study on, on, how they're different than millennials and prior generations. And you could be sure uh, increasingly, even more so than we see with millennials, their first and last screen of the day is their smartphone. And uh, the average American is up to four and a half hours of leisure time on these phones. So imagine how much time is taking place for those who are, you know, of recruitable age athletes on smartphones and on social media. And it is uh, their first destination, uh, uh, funny, that many people may be hearing this for the first time is TikTok. Is their first right. destination app, not the first thing they see when they open up their phone. But, but, um, and on down the line, by the way, it goes to uh, basically uh, Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook, and the the fifth, I guess you could call it, would be uh, YouTube. But um, this is where they live. This is where they interact. This is uh, how their reputation that they find themselves. They're socially visible to the outside world, and it is very much. Uh, if you're to look at sort of like the pyramid of decision making for these young people and where they choose a school, the tip of that pyramid is their comfort and relationship with people, namely their uh, position coach or the coach that's leading the recruiting effort with them. But that spills over into other coaches, head coach, and even the 
young people in their own recruiting class they meet. But if you consider it human relationships at the very absolute tip of the spear, um, it, it is being cultivated and, and, and shared and taking place on social media overwhelmingly. And I could break down the minutes and seconds, but if you want to ignore all the detail and cut to it, you can't invest enough in social media. And I would exhaust those efforts before I even spent the first dollar in other areas. Yeah. So, okay. So let's go down, uh, not a rabbit hole, but certainly let's do a little temporary stop on that topic and dig in just a little bit more because I think instinctively college coaches know I should be doing a lot on social media. Kids like social media. Uh, you know, this generation is drawn toward that. That's, that's well established. So, the other then point is that they are so inundated, and you mentioned the amount of screen time that Gen Z will will devote uh, on a daily basis, and you know, big portion of that being social media. You mentioned the uh, sort of the evolution and the emergence of TikTok, and we've done some articles on that, uh, and uh, for our clients and, and subscribers. Uh, so I perfectly, uh, completely agree with you. Uh, you know, t- two billion users and downloads worldwide can't be too wrong. So that being said, um, there's a lot of noise on social media. And if, for instance, every college coach listening to this took the advice and really just poured it all into social media uh, in terms of, you know, developing their brand and reaching out and connecting with recruits and telling their story. Now there is so much noise to break through. So is it just being out on social media or does then it, uh, you know, step two and an important step two of that involve being more creative than the other person, I guess, because then that's the new battleground and you want to go to go to battle with a, with a different type and a better type of weapon than your competitor. Well, um, this first comment won't be super tangible, um, but it, it, um, Decisions like this are very much based on feelings. We will, as people, <laughs> rationalize uh, the, the academic standing of the university or the facilities or whatever it is we need to fit our, our narrative, but it's overwhelmingly feelings uh, that drive people to these decisions. So, I mean, this is... Uh, this and is I'll just a... let you know, AJ, that coaches that listen to this, that, that heard you say that, uh, smile because we pound them over the head that these kids, this generation... Uh, are making and even the parents that are helping them make the decisions make them based on their feelings uh, and they are very irrational in the way they they make that final decision many times so i think you're you're in good company here with that oh good well i know you do great work and i i i guess i won't uh, beat a dead horse then but but no no beat it we beat it all the time so just (laughs) give it a couple of whacks yourself no problem well, maybe the angle that I could put it on it, because half yeah. our people are these social scientists, and, and there's this field in our world we call behavioral economics, which is understanding reward, incentive, change in behavior based on those feelings. So knowing that almost all marketing influence and entirely sports marketing influence of decisions like this are based on feelings, um, it, the question becomes what dial do you turn or what lever do you pull to affect what kind of kids and what kind of parts of the country with you know what kind of feelings? Um, so this is good news, bad news, you know, um, depending on who we are. The good news is if you're light on resources and you don't have some of those facts and figures and, and features um, that people use to justify their decision, um, you can circumvent that, <laughs> right, by having um, a, a really uh, impactful and influential campaign um, that, 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 you know, influences these feelings and these relationships and that connectivity again to the, 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 the class that they will enter with and the athletes that are being recruited to your university 
and to the coaches and the relationship with you and your staff, you know, and the experience is going to be there four or five years on campus. Um, so, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of specific examples. You would love this. We have this Gen Z expert that she's, you know, uh, still in school at Princeton. We've been working with her for over five years. Now she's <laughs> a contractor, of course, because she has a real life. Right. But, you know, she's sort of the, in theory, the face of this Gen Z study we just released. But the point of it is, is to uh, essentially get to what matters to them, um, you know, uh, personally, privately, directly. And you have that chance of that one-to-one -one communication. Here's the good news for coaches. I, I know they're stretched thin, and it is one heck of a challenge that recruiting is, or at least feels like a 24-7 nonstop activity. Um, not that you want to be disingenuous with who they're communicating with, but there are many methods to unload this burden on you. There's many right. methods for the great creative to be produced and you distributed and you forwarded on, or that people are speaking on your behalf or, or you know, on behalf of the program for you. So there is ways to decouple this from your late nights and your text messages and your phone conversations um, in pursuing these athletes. Uh, and it is highly effective, highly efficient and low cost. Uh, so I know I'm being generic because you may mm -hmm. not want to go deeper than that, but um, this is the crux of, of, of half of our staff, right? The, the social sciences on what makes people do what they do. Right. Right. Okay. So, so with that being said, um, with social media, where, I guess the simple question then is why aren't more athletic departments, coaching staffs, and even colleges devoting more towards social media? What if, if, and, and I think again, instinctively, they know that these kids are on social media and yet you still see, um, I'm you know, having two daughters that have gone through the college search process, one an athlete, one just a regular college student. You get inundated with stuff in the mail that is, you know, beautifully produced and it goes on the desk or in the corner and doesn't get read again. And yet year after year after year, they're devoting tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars towards these campaigns. Why aren't they getting it? Well, I wouldn't blame them because people whose living it is to find customers through these marketing channels, through digital or television or radio or outdoor media, they are lagging as well. So if, um, I don't know if there's a mechanism for your listeners to be able to follow up with this, but if people can send a note to whatever your generic note is, or I have a, a generic email at aj at navigateresearch.com where mm -hmm. people can, and our staff will dig through that and try to answer questions for folks. The we have this chart that that you know could be pretty compelling to an administrator that shows time spent by consumers um, versus uh, the the noise that's trying to attract them or that you're trying to break through, and even today with with companies and CMOS who are paid big money to beat their competitors at finding audiences, there is a massive uh, lag on reaching people through social, digital, and mobile relative to an overinvestment in let's say print. Right. That's the most prominent thing that jumps out on the chart. So there, there is ways in which a physical print game ticket or souvenir or program, you know, stand out. But as a general rule of thumb, we are still disturbingly as a whole industry, as a whole world of marketers, uh, grossly underinvested in the direction we're talking about right now to run towards and, um, and still stuck in some of these old methods that are uh, inefficient and ineffective and outdated. So uh, I wouldn't lay blame on anybody's, you know, sort of doorstep, the whole world's doing it. People are paid mm -hmm. uh, big bucks and their whole life is meant to do this. With that said, if you go through that same exercise and saying, you know, what matters to a coach or what matters to an athletic director and what environment are they in that whole, the same 10 deep breaths, put myself in their shoes. 
you can get fired as an athletic director for making a, um, a frivolous investment or, or doing something that uh, pushes the limits of the NCAA, but you don't get a big promotion, you know, for, for, you know, at least not in the immediate term for driving revenue, right? It's a slow build right. to success. And even though as a coach, your entire career, your reputation, your next job, your job security in this job, and, and all the effect that has on all of the lives associated with you and your football staff and families and significant others and children, is all really heavily, heavily affected by winning more than anything else. Yeah, you know, your day runs away from you, right? That, right. That's just that's just how life works. Yeah. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't blame people for lagging, but if you if you take the numbers or that I'm this chart that I'm referencing to you that the whole world is behind, and then you drill down into collegiate athletics in a not for profit world where there isn't one clear objective or two like winning and profit like you'd have in pro sports, but instead. Right all these other intentions and stakeholders, it's not hard to see why, why, um, why uh, innovation lags. And, and, uh, but for you and for the listeners, that creates an opportunity. If you can get the air cover from your board and your administrators and, and your team to push the envelope, that, that gives you a significant advantage. I, I, I feel bad on this part because it's repeating that John Wilner podcast, but um, we fight and claw for a two, three or 4% uh, performance advantage and everything from speed to whatever it might be right on the field. And the advantages in recruiting are 20 and 30 and 40% uh, Delta or change wow. or difference. So mm -hmm. uh, when you think about the Jimmy's and Joe's versus the X's and O's and what, what, what serves all those missions and all those goals and desires in your life and, and for your fan base. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I would see that as an opportunity, not a problem. It's just right. one that you have to you have to think about uh, the motivation of the budget holder and decision maker. These are not for profits. There's no extra money floating around. If you put more money into recruiting, it's going to come from somewhere. Where is it coming from? Because uh, there's not a lot of overpaid people in collegiate athletics. Right. No. Great. No. Great. Great point. So, um, you know and. I'm going to tell you right now that I could probably spend another two hours just on that topic and why it's not happening at, at colleges and, and, you know, the, the sort of the human element involved in slowing things down. But uh, in the interest of, of this podcast, I want to move it along uh, and, uh, and, and go sort of take that idea that you just put out there, that statement about, you know, the direct correlation to spending, and investing in in social media recruiting and and what that return is, we've been talking about Division One big time programs, the Alabamas and Tennessees of the world. Let's go smaller than that. Let's go to the medium sized Division Two schools, the smaller Division Threes, which actually, as a market segment, make up more as a, on a percentage basis of all of college athletics and and all of colleges. How can they, in your opinion? take the same principle and put it to work for them when they don't have the same budget, when they don't have the same staffing, when it's, when it's uh, an athletic director and maybe he has an assistant, it's a head coach and she has, you know, uh, uh, a part-time assistant. And yet they want to start applying some of these things that instinctively they know they should be doing that you now quantitatively lay out and say, yep, we can prove that it's going to pay off. How can they do it at a smaller school? Well, um, I, I feel terrible repeating some of the, the things I alluded to earlier, but you can get people to work for you for, for free or low cost. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and they do. Uh, and that, that's a great right. idea. And it's a, absolutely. I, I, coaches are nodding their heads right now as they're listening to that. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, you know, our, our, our longtime head of research, he's retiring, unfortunately, but PhD in experimental psychology from Brown. He'd been doing this stuff in sport for over 30 years. He, um, he was, you know, tr truly, a, uh, um, truly an exceptional human being in his understanding of what motivates, you know, human behavior. And, and um, he could say this more eloquently than I could, but, but third-party referential power, someone else saying something's cool or I'm going to go to school there. So I would say um, put other people to work for you, whether it be student support groups, um, you know, internship programs, even the student athletes themselves. You know, it's not uncommon for these uh, athletes to know each other from playing in that state or that region or travel teams or AU basketball or whatever it might be. And um, they can have a lot more influence on one another and their peers than you can um, do, as I say, not as I've done kind of thing, right? That just doesn't <laughs> right. work. So uh, you could arm them with the tools and, you know, you could, um, you, you could sell into the idea of you, you know, coming here collectively. And as they spend time together, if they do their recruiting trip together, if they stay in touch, if they've got this WhatsApp group going where they're in sort of a constant dialogue of relationship and friendship, they're, they're incredibly more sticky. I mean, this is off the charts, by the way. This isn't, you know, you're 10% more likely to land that kid. You are two times as likely to have that young person come join you if they have formed a bond with their class and they feel already, you know, a part of something. And, you know, they're not that you want to play on fear, but that alleviates a lot of the fears of uh, take yourself back to being 17. What do you know about anything at age 17? Right. You're about to choose your university. You don't really know the coaches, what position you're going to end up really actually playing, where you're going to sort out on the depth chart. You don't even probably study the depth chart and even understand who's there in front of you or coming behind you. It, it, it is essentially, you know, <laughs> a highly malleable situation. So right. um, I, I, the, when I talk about triple digit, you know, influence in games, um, anything that um, without, you know, getting into nitty gritty tactics, anything that encourages a sense of community, a connection in a relationship with people, whether that's, again, your coaches, your staff, the, the other kids that they will uh, enter your program with, the, the, these are methods in which you have this amplifying effect that isn't your man hours, your time, or, or really budget that doesn't exist, right? So small schools, I would actually further emphasize the advice that uh, we were the tactics we've been discussing, which is to, mm -hmm. to bias your budget towards social, digital, and mobile uh, practices. Yeah. So one little observation about what you just said, um, and for coaches, again, that, that have done some work with us, or if you've been in a workshop or anything, there's this, we've done a lot of work on, on how college visits, like when an athlete goes and does a recruiting visit on campus, what should that experience be like? What do the athletes want? We know they go a certain way, depending on what the coach has outlined, but if it were up to the athletes, what do they what do they want? And we've done a lot of focus groups and a lot of coaches know where, where I'm going with this that are listening. We've asked them nationally a really good sample size of kids. What is it? What percent of time of your visit that you took on a recruiting visit, if it was up to you, what percent of time would you want to spend just hanging out with some of the guys or young women on the team as the primary way of making your decision or figuring out if that's the right school for you? Really, we're trying to measure exactly what you're talking about, AJ, is the feelings, the emotions, the draw, that 17, 16-year-old mind at work and trying to make a decision. And if it were up to them, uh, on average, it's 64% of the time. 64% of the visit, if it was up to them, they just would be 
hanging out with some of the team, not going on all the tours, all the information sessions, all the, you know, the back to back to back to back meetings that, that they're put through. They really just want to relax and soak it in. And that's what, and when coaches have implemented that, uh, they have seen incredible results. It's a happier student. It, I think it connects with everything that you're saying is that as adults, we have to realize they're, they're not making an adult decision. They're making this decision based on that 17 year old mind. So I think that's, um, that, that's fantastic. Well, that's very interesting work. We, we, I would sure like to talk to you about that offline. Um, yeah. You know, it's well, like, like I said, if, if we recorded our conversation that I want to have with you, AJ, this would be a five and a half hour podcast. So <laughs> I, think, right. I think it's just, I need to get up to Chicago and spend a day with you. Cause I would, um, I think that'd be fascinating, but, um, so anyway, I think we're tracking there. Um, let me get to, you know, we talked about the mindset of the, the, uh, the athlete. Let me talk to about the mindset of coaches and administrators, maybe go back a little bit towards this idea of why things haven't changed on campus. Coaches, um, love the, the gains and the act of coaching, um, that, so in other words, they, they love to get the good players. They love it when a good player shows up on campus, they get that big recruit. They love coaching. That's why they got into it. They didn't get into it for the sales and marketing and research side, but then that's become part of their business now. Um, what, and then I'm just, again, looking for your experience or, or your opinion. What, when, when a coach makes that change, when a coach actually gets to the point of saying, you know what, I need to do a better job. Okay. I've got to devote more time to marketing. What causes that change or what, um, what what convinces them to take this shift in mindset that really I am a marketer and I need to understand marketing and, and the sales side of this? Huh, well, you're right. It's not, it is not what has naturally attracted them to the, or most, it's not what naturally attracts them to the, to the role. But um, I mean, I hate to say winning and losing again, but you know, the, the, this kid that uh, could have been on your campus breaks a tackle and runs away from the rest of your defense, you know, and, and you say, boy, we had we 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 schemed it right. Our guys were in the position. Um, we just got beat. Uh, right. That was a phys physically superior athlete. I think we, as I shared earlier, you know, what is the um, what is the variance in in your ability to out coach, out perform, out scheme the competition um, versus the product you have on the field? You know, what the X's and O's versus Jimmy and Joe's. Um, when you look at other sports environments, you know, there's there's a small bandwidth of what you can pay uh, the athletes. I'm talking about pro sports, you know, to right. compete as far as floor and ceiling. Baseball has a lot of variance in what the payroll can be, but most of the other sports like the NFL, it's a very tight bandwidth. I mean, it is all down to your performance. And in this world, it's a winner take all on talent. You know, there is no reason that you can't have your first choice. Well, there's reasons, but in theory, there's no rules against you having your first choice of every athlete of every position that you want up to your scholarship limit in each recruiting class. And, um, and I, I would argue, uh, even though there are unquestionably exceptional coaches that, that outcoach their peers, um, that without the talent, the, you have a pretty hard ceiling on where you can go. And um, obviously, the combination of both is necessary. But, um, but when we look at relative performance, effort, energy, money, time spent, the arbitrage opportunity, the, the chance for you to outperform peers on a relative basis, whether that's a straight up competitive advantage or it's comparative, they might still have an outright advantage because they have a more um, fertile recruiting ground, but on a comparative basis, your chance to outperform them um, is, is recruiting and the talent you put on the field. This is 
available to you at a fraction, again, of the cost of if we were in a professional model on what that payroll would look like. So uh, uh, imagine if the NFL or the NBA, using basketball and football, obviously, right. imagine um, if, if they had their current model, but they paid the athletes what we do relative to the cost of our scholarships. The basketball scholarships are um, 0.5, one half of 1% of what an NBA roster is. And, uh, and uh, college football scholarships are roughly 2% of what an NFL uh, payroll is. Um, again, their, their revenues are higher too, but the right. point is, is on a percent basis, uh, there is massive room to invest in what essentially is your roster. Right. Um, so I, I just, it, it, what's strange to me is that, um, that, that it's not more widely seen or known if you compare your coaching staff and support staff and payroll versus what goes into recruiting. If you compare, you know, all the other resources versus one another, there's one that sticks out like a sore thumb, one that's, that's many, many multiples, nine, 10, 11 times, you know, sort of off what you would expect. And that's, that's that, you know, it is what it is. Cause we're, this is amateur athletics, but um, you could, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll stop, but you okay. get the point. <laughs> uh so, well, but I want to build on that because we're talking about college athletics and that's what the conversation has been. And yet a lot of your work at, uh, at Navigate gets to, you know, gets to work with um, on people, firms, uh, organizations on the professional side. So I'm just wondering what, what is the difference? Do you, do you have as much, as many issues maybe convincing professional teams to see this and change what they're doing? Um, compared to colleges or are they just, are they actively looking for ways to do it better because there is maybe in their mind so much more at stake uh, or are they just more pliable when it comes to how do we need to change? Just tell us and we'll do it. Well, um, these are for-profit entities and, right. and so they have two missions to win and, and, and profit and, you know, varying, you know, sort of priority depending on the owner. But um but they serve one another. Both of those serve one another. All those missions of a university, some of those are, are at, at significant odds with one another, right? Whether you're the mm -hmm. president of the university or even the athletic director. Um, so where is the rub? Uh, you know, the, as not-for-profit institutions with the federal rules around Title IX and the support of, you know, these Olympic sports means that all of that profit I'm describing, all of that amount that would go to payroll or what have you in a normal free market you know, environment in football uh, goes to support those Olympic sports. And so, um, and, and many of those, you know, sports are run threadbare, you know, they, because they will never be in the black financially, they are cost minimizing exercises. So there isn't a bunch of real easy cuts to go make. Um, now at the university mission level up here at 30,000 feet, if they believe in sports and they believe what it brings to the university, um, as would be for smaller schools, which I know is a, a part of your audience, someone there believes in that mission. Otherwise they wouldn't be subsidizing athletics. It wouldn't just be all about the money right, or even right. just all about subsidizing yeah. the Olympic sports. Um, you know, or you'd cut all sports down to a minimum of the revenue sports and the equivalent number of uh, women's sports to offset those in scholarships. <laughs> right. So, right. you know, the SEC, you know, has about 18, 19 sports per school. Um, you know, that, that, that is like a microcosm example of, of that version where the athletic departments are, less broad in sports and, and more run like a business. But um, I, I would say putting yourself in their shoes of that decision-maker and understanding that there are all these stakeholders and constituents that they have to serve, 
but um, but uh, revenue is not a dirty word, even in a not-for-profit environment. And so given that, um, if you have hockey, you could add that to it, sometimes baseball, but generally speaking, it's about football and basketball um, that are subsidizing these other sports. If you don't take care of that golden goose, um, none of those other sports have a chance at all, right? If your uh, right. athletic department as a whole is going to elevate, you almost are required to have uh, some level of sustained success in um, basketball and football or great success in one uh, to cover for it all. So um, the argument that seems to be most effective for us is, you know, go big or go home. Uh, this, this just doesn't work at all. Uh, there's no chance that the department as a whole can reach the heights it wants to without those revenue sports performing well. Uh, and um, if the incremental spend, as, as we're arguing, as I'm arguing on behalf of Navigate, uh, has large positive ROI associated with it, then you can't afford not to invest in those areas. They're double negative for everybody. You must invest in those areas um, <laughs> to, to cover for the other things. Or you have to go to the university president and the board of regents with your handout and um, – and, and ask them to <laughs> pay for Olympic sports. Right. Right. Um, give me sort of how I want to wrap this, this conversation up. And I, I hope that we get the chance to both uh, talk on a podcast again, as well as uh, get to just uh, take a couple hours on some free day we both have and, um, and, uh, and, and talk shop, but give me kind of a forecast of, uh, of 10 years from now, uh, which is again just your opinion, but it's but you know you start to build out trend lines and you get to see you know how things are going and and as a as a not only somebody involved in researching this market but also a fan of college athletics. Uh, I'm just wondering what do you see in the next ten years? What what is what does college athletics look like? What are the things that are uh, that are are you know the, the the issues or the things that that you know coaches need to be aware of that are probably going to be uh, evolving? I know one thing just in colleges uh, around college campuses in general, uh, there's a general nervousness about the year 2025 because there's a huge dip in available both students and athletes because of uh, that's the basically the graduating class of the 2008 recession. And there's a big dip that's coming. And so there will be this, the stark reality is a lot of colleges, many of whom will not be making these, uh, these choices that you're re recommending they make, uh, are going to go out of business. They're going to close. And we're already seeing that. Um, so those are some things that more on the immediate future we see. But, but give us sort of a, a big picture view of, of kind of what, what you see college athletics dealing with in the next 10 years. Well, um, I, I know this is uh, counter to what a lot of people will say, you know, that we've reached a ceiling in revenue, there's nowhere else to go, but we have the good fortune. We work with all the major league offices, all the major networks and broadcasters. You know, we get to see the pro sports world from a bunch of different angles. And um, there are numerous business practices in the pro sports world that have not been employed in the collegiate space yet or not fully deployed. So, um, and if you look at the average rate of growth of revenue in collegiate athletics, compared to other pro sports, it's, it's, uh, is, it's among the slowest. It's there mm -hmm. tied with the slowest growing. So there's potential for revenue growth in there. And, um, you know, I, when you look at the television deals coming up and what have you, of course, this benefits those uh, on the top more, you know, the, the power five will benefit more than division three as an example. But um, I would predict um, revenue growth faster than most people realize or expect. 
Um, so that's a positive. That's right. more resources. Uh, that's more compensation of a coach, you know, in a, in a free and open market. Um, I would predict, uh, I, I would predict all of these things that move us further toward a sort of free market system to continue. I consider that sort of an inevitable momentum name, image, and likeness. It's been a very long time that even Olympic athletes in the U S have had those rights to their intellectual property. Um, we're the last place in the world, right? Where, where right. an athlete or a person who's an adult is restricted from those rights. So that's, it's pretty obvious. That's a sure thing, but, 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 uh, there's levels beyond that. There's collective bargaining, like on licensing, there's individual rights for things like endorsements. Um, there's, you know, the, the right to collectively negotiate, which I don't think is unrealistic over time that athletes are able to unionize and, and that you see more than the cost of attendance become a part of the equation. Uh, again, I realize this is absolutely at odds with title nine and, and, and something's got to give there in the right. model of athletic departments. But 10 years, I think within that 10 year frame might be closer to 10 than it is two. But, um, but the, as the revenue rises, as I'm predicting at a pretty healthy rate and those new TV deals come across, um, it becomes more and more difficult to say that, that, that we actually cannot financially afford to do more for these athletes. So there's, there's a lot there. Um, transfer rules, um, you know, everything that looks like a free market system, I would say that we would, there, you know, it's always a, a jagged line, right? There'll be a step forward, a step back. Right. But generally speaking, I think it'll be two steps forward for every step back in the direction of, if you, call, if you count this as forward, towards free market mechanisms where these athletes have a right to leave a school just as a coach has the right to leave a school, right? And, um, and to earn a living and to become a fresh professional when they see fit. Um, so some of the restrictions on when someone's able to go pro, um, I'm trying to bias this answer towards, you know, knowing your audiences is a lot of coaches sort of asking yourself, okay, I'm going to, am I going to be recruiting my own current roster? Am I going to have to implement some of these tactics I'm describing with my existing student athletes to create stickiness on my roster, just as you would, if you ran a company or a, or a for-profit team, right? Part of the culture and the training and facilities and everything serve to keep people on your roster, uh, right? right. Uh, an NFL player is less likely to leave the New England Patriots, <laughs> right? Than they are, you know, let's say a lesser performing team and environment. Um, so I think those are all realistic in the next 10 years, part, part or in, in, in whole. Um, but all those things further would incentivize what I'm describing, the kind of research that you described uh, that you have done and, and Dan and that we do at, at Navigate, which is, imagine uh, where your job and your life and your family's life all depends on the success of these young people playing a sport, right? Because it is so highly correlated with revenue. Um, wouldn't you have incredible policies around attraction and retention in your staff and satisfaction in your staff? Wouldn't you know great detail about the people you're recruiting to become a part of this organization? Wouldn't you, you know, uh, use a fine tooth comb, you know, in your due diligence on character and personality and fit with the culture of your team, you'd be amazed at uh, how many people will spend 10 times that amount of money on, on, on physical development relative to, you know, the mental aspect of the game or the culture of your, your, your organization. And, yeah. and that's the world you and I are talking about. So yeah, I, I think that everything we talked about today is relevant to the predictions I just made. Hopefully I'm not wrong. You can throw daggers at me if I am. I'm willing to, I'm willing to be wrong. So the main takeaway from this, if you are a coach or an athletic director, regardless of what level you coach at or what sport you coach at, is this. College athletics matters. College athletics provides a good return on investment for the university, 
And there should be more investment into those programs and attracting the right students, the right athletes, and building championship-level programs. Because when you do, good things happen at your school. Good things happen from a, from a revenue standpoint for the college athletic department that it serves and the college that it serves. And that's the main point. And we really think the uh, the team at Navigate Research and CEO and founder AJ Maestas for lending their information and credibility to the conversation that we continually have here, which is how do athletic departments grow? How do college programs get better through recruiting, through the, the focus on a message, and in this case, through where they devote their dollars. So we thank uh, AJ for, for spending time with us. I am so glad that we found a way and some good context for releasing the conversation and letting you share in the great conversation that we had with him. And most of all, Coach, I hope it helps. I hope it helps the conversation on your college campus. And if there are conversations about cutbacks and maybe even dropping sports that this provides some good ammunition for you to go in and say wait a minute this is not a good economic decision to make uh, when a crisis happens one of the first things that you do is oh where do we cut how can we stop spending money because we see a a uh, we're going to see a um a reduction in funds coming in. We need to cut. Well, there are certainly times when when elements of that are true, but when it comes to college athletics, I think the point here that's been proven is when you invest, good things happen for the school. And if you invest in the right ways, great things can happen for not only the school, but the athletic department and the teams and the student athletes that that investment goes to. So, That's the point. We hope it helped. And I really, again, thank you for listening to the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. We're going to link to a lot of other resources that AJ and uh, Navigate Research offers, some also some some past additional podcast conversations that, that he has been on and articles featuring their work because the more that you know and understand about the approach that they take, the better understanding you'll have as to some of the solutions that they see being logical uh, and needed throughout college athletics. So we thank you for listening, Coach. We hope it helps. Hope it was interesting. I think it was. And uh, we will be back with more information and more resources for you in future episodes. So keep on listening to the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. And if you have any questions for us, uh, all of our information will be in the show notes. We would love to help you. We would love to put you in contact with AJ and his team if that's something that your department feels is uh, it would, might be a smart investment. And it would be. And we can help as well, especially when it comes to the messaging, the approach, some of the things that AJ talked about Um, That is our specialty at Tudor Collegiate Strategies. So we would love to partner with you in the way that we do with over 400 different athletic programs across the country and uh, and do our work uh, and do good stuff for you as we're doing for them. So thanks for listening, Coach. We hope you have a great week. And stay tuned for more on upcoming episodes of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. The College Recruiting Weekly Podcast is a production of Tudor Collegiate Strategies, copyright 2016 through 2020. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or stream us on Stitcher, and make sure to tell the coaches in your department about the show.
Email the host at dan at dantutor.com and visit the website to access more of the free resources we give to the college coaching community. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast.